0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse and I'm Eric. Hi Eric. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Good. Uh, we're going to be talking about Uh, this topic of stupidity and intelligence in science fiction, and maybe in fantasy too, but I'm not sure it's a topic in fantasy. Uh, Did you come up with anything fantasy-related in in your researches?
1: Well, you know, I think it depends on, of course, (laughs) how you think of the topic, but to give one motif where those two issues uh, are highlighted, the notion of the sorcerer's apprentice. When you have someone who's too stupid to understand the power of the knowledge that he has, then suddenly intelligence goes awry. And so, you know, think of Mickey Mouse in Fantasia running, trying madly to to mop up all of what's gone on. Or uh, think of Famulus Wagner in uh, Marlowe's Faust. I think there is uh, a question of intelligence versus stupidity. In fantasy, and often it is the the stupid person who is somehow seen as in touch with more basic aspects of life than the intelligent person. So, in a fairy tale like uh, *Clever Hans*, um, Hans is actually not clever at all. He only he makes one bad trade after another, uh, uh, lowering his wealth until he has nothing but the opportunity to return to the arms of his mother. And then he's the happiest boy in the world.
0: It made so, me think of uh, the the horse, clever Hans. When you, I don't know the the fairy tale. I think we you mentioned it in a previous podcast. But um, this is this is a story of like uh, like uh, um, you know the magic beans kind of story.
1: Actually, it's uh, we don't know the motivation here, though, uh, again, I imagine it's an absent father. Uh, Hans is sent off to be an apprentice to someone, and he works for him for years, at the end of which time his recompense is this huge nugget of gold, which he puts on his head and walks away with <laughs> to go back home to his mother to show him her what he has earned. But, uh, of course, it's too heavy. And so someone says, you know, that's so heavy, why don't I give you a horse for it instead, and then you'll be able to get home more quickly. And then the horse is so large and it has to be fed, and someone says, oh, well, you know, why don't I give you this for it? And each of the trades diminishes him until he eventually gets back to his mother and runs up to her utterly unencumbered by any of the things of our economic world and is as happy as
0: I see it. I got it. Yeah, so um, it's it's, uh, the the title has a double meaning, right? Because, I mean, you're, a big piece of gold actually doesn't have a have any value. I mean, it only has value in trade, right? Exactly. And, uh, exactly. and he does have the trades, and he has all those experiences, and so um, he's very rich.
1: Indeed. I, so he really is clever. He knows what matters most. And what matters most is the emotional rather than the intellectual aspects of
0: life. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I, 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 I was, I was, I was thinking you were talking about the, the, you know, the story of the horse that could, that could count, right? Uh, which is, uh, I guess, I, I would assume that 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 was, you know, wasn't that a German horse as well?
1: It was indeed.
0: So they must have uh, named this horse in a <laughs> in an ironic way without knowing it, right? And I think maybe maybe they did know it <laughs> because the the horse the well, but but apparently the the trainer didn't realize that uh, he had trained the horse to to know or to read uh, read the trainer's body language right this is this is the story of the horse that that uh, could count so you would you know I, I, I don't know exactly how it would work but I assume you know it it would um, have a bunch of people in the crowd and they would say uh, uh, give me a number right and seven and someone says give me another number and ten, and they say, "Now, what's the product of those number hands?" Right, <laughs> and the hands would start clomping his foot until, until the the, the trainer, you know, says, "Aha, he's got it!" Right, and then the hands would stop. Right, and and they say, "Wow, he is really clever. He knows how to multiply." But Christ. really, he was just uh, I, so. I'm not. I'm not sure what the 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 long story is on that. But it, in a way, Clever Hands is a very clever horse, right? He's managed to read his, what his owner wants, and he's he got himself a great job. Um, right. You know, and doesn't have to pull things all day. Um, just has to clomp his foot. Uh, but on the other hand, I guess the owner wasn't quite as smart as he thought he was.
1: Right. Hmm. Uh, that's true. And I, I think that uh, it, it may well be, since it was, I, I believe, as you say, a, a German a sideshow, uh, sort of a a carnival act, uh, that they did know of the Grimm fairy tale. Uh, It would would make a lot of sense. Uh, In fact, as I was thinking about um, what we're going to talk about, what we are talking about today, uh, I I found a passage in uh, War with the Newts about a newt named Hans.
0: That's the uh, RUR guy, right? Um, That's right.
1: Carl Chopik.
0: Right Chapter. Um, okay, and
1: war with the newts is a is a wonderful wonderful uh book uh, in which these animals that presumably have no intelligence whatsoever um, are given their first tool by a kind hearted uh, human being, uh, and they take to that tool quite nicely, uh, then they get released from the shark-infested waters that had kept their population down, and ultimately they become so numerous that they threaten humanity. Um, But along the way, we start studying them, and it's this passage with Hans that is is significant here, in part uh, because for people who know the grim fairy tale, you can't help but wonder if Chopik expected them to be thinking is this a clever animal or is this um really intelligence you know what what does clever mean when it comes to Hans um Matt could I read this
0: passage yeah please please do
1: um so this is uh, from the middle of the book called uh this along the steps to civilization um and the newts are becoming, they're mastering more and more human kinds of stuff. This is the report someone makes of uh, his own investigations of newts, and he says, the flesh of the newts has also been taken to be unfit for human consumption, and even poisonous. If eaten raw, it causes acute pains, vomiting, and mental hallucinations. Dr. Pinkle ascertained after many experiments performed on himself, that these harmful effects disappear if the chopped meat is scalded with hot water, as with some toadstools, and after washing thoroughly, it is pickled for 24 hours in a weak solution of permanganate of potash. Then it can be cooked or stewed and tastes like inferior beef. In this way, we ate a newt called Hans, He was an able and intelligent animal with a special bent for scientific work. He was employed in Dr. Pinkle's department as his assistant, and even refined chemical analysis could be entrusted to him. We used to have long conversations with him in the evenings, amusing ourselves with his insatiable thirst for knowledge. With deep regret, we had to put Hans to death because my experiments on trepanning him made him blind. Oh His meat was dark and spongy, but did not cause any unpleasant effects. It is clear that in the case of war, newt flesh could form a welcome and cheap substitute for beef. Yikes! Indeed, yikes! My students always say that that passage is the single most horrifying passage in the book.
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a nightmare of uh, you know the evil scientists, right?
1: Exactly, if that's what intelligence means it, I mean it's it's just stunning, and it occurred to me as I was looking at this, so often that's what intelligence means in science fiction. there are some things man was not meant to know, no. and, and look at how gorgeously Chopic works this out of all of the experiments that could be done, what this writer that is the writer of the report, says he did with Hans, was to trepan him. That is, he's drilling into his brain. And the result of drilling into his brain is to make him go blind. And, of course, sight is exactly the sight the the sense that we always use to stand for intelligence. See what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. You know? um, he's so bright.
1: Exactly. Um he has a good perspective on things. He's a man of vision. Yeah. Right? I mean, that that sight is exactly what it is that the scientist kills in Hans by drilling into his brain. The, the question of, I mean, how could he not see that Hans was intelligent and, and therefore not recognizes humanity? And the problem, of course, is the scientist is so intelligent that he becomes divorced from humanity.
0: Hmm. That's that's pretty tough. That's pretty tough. It occurred
1: uh, to me there's there's a lot of that going around in science fiction.
0: Well, just based on this and, and I guess R U R it sounds to me like uh Capek is not very um enthusiastic about humanity's uh good goodness.
1: Well, um you know he's writing in primarily in the period between the first and second world wars. And he is a Czech. Which means that he is very aware of the ambitions of his neighbor, Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has seen a lot of really disastrous things. He spent most of his working hours at, in life as a journalist, not as a novelist or playwright. And so he was constantly thinking of the... Uh, The political pressures uh, on the world he occupied.
0: Hmm. That's that's uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, uh, This is why this is why I like having you on the show because every time I think I know what a topic's about, you you always bring a spin on it that I'm thinking. (laughs) I'm thinking, what? This isn't where I thought this was going to go. And um, yeah, it's it's um, well, I guess it goes back to Frankenstein as well, right? He's he's not uh, he's not the it's not that he's more um, intelligent than everyone, although he's in- extremely intelligent, right? But yeah. the important part is he's, he's more passionate about uh, not caring about anything except for his one topic.
1: Indeed, you've got it. He is the egotist. He doesn't care about the community, whereas his monster does. His monster wants community, he wants a bride you know there's a, there's a great passage um in that it, it, it's it's wonderful that you you bring us back to frankenstein cuz uh, i also was thinking of that there's there's chapter 11 begins uh i i wouldn't read it all to you but if you give me a minute this says something about what we think intelligence means the the monster as anyone who's read the book will know, as opposed to people who saw Boris Karloff in the role, the monster is, in fact, the most articulate and intelligent character in the book. Mm-hmm. But now, when he first confronts his creator on the ice at Chamonix, at the, on the glacier, he is giving his creator his own sense of what it meant to come alive. And he says... It is with considerable difficulty that I remember the original era of my being. All the events of that period appear confused and indistinct. A strange multiplicity of sensations seized me, and I saw, felt, heard, and smelt at the same time. And it was indeed a long time before I learned to distinguish between the operations of my various senses. By degrees, I remember... A stronger light pressed upon my nerves so that I was obliged to shut my eyes. Darkness then came over me and troubled me, but hardly had I felt this when, by opening my eyes, as I now supposed, the light poured in upon me again. I walked, and I believe descended, but I presently found a great alteration in my sensations. Before, dark and opaque bodies had surrounded me, impervious to my touch or sight. But I now found that I could wander on at liberty with no obstacles, which I could not either surmount or avoid. The light became more and more oppressive to me, and the heat wearying me as I walked, I sought a place where I could receive shade. I I won't go on, but it's gorgeous, I think, the way the monster, this incredibly intelligent individual sees that his coming into being is dependent upon analysis in the literal radical sense of that word of cutting things apart he has to separate sight from hearing from touch from smell from heat from i mean and it's the organization of the senses and the capacity to then be able to distinguish these channels and get inputs from each of them that's what makes him a person so for him Intelligence arises at the same time as personhood arises. And that's what I think is so horrifying with the passage with Hans. He's so clearly a person because he has intelligence.
0: Yeah. And yet they they don't seem to care about that. It's the, it's the overriding passion, I guess. Um, exactly. It, it makes me think, uh, you know... That's dealing maybe with ideology is is the is the bad stuff overriding, overriding the. Overriding the intellectual interest, right? It's it's not that we, we don't we aren't interested. It's that we have another interest as well, which is not to, not to treat. Someone that is a person as a non-person.
1: Indeed, you know, there's there's a line in Frankenstein. It says. One man's life were but a small price to pay for the knowledge that I sought. And out of context, it seems clear that, that Victor Frankenstein, the creator of the monster, has got to be the person who says this. Yeah, But in fact, it's not. It's Robert Walton, the sea captain, who takes in Victor when Victor is exhausted on the Arctic ice. He says that about his desire to go... And find the North Pole. And what he does, in fact, is listen to his men when they say, we can't go forward. This is suicide. So he decides to abandon that ideology. He says one man's life were but a small price to pay. But he decides, no, a man's life is more important than knowledge. Victor never decides that. And so ideology... There is an ideology of intelligence that itself is suspect, and I think you're right. Starting from Frankenstein on, it runs all through science fiction.
2: Hmm,
0: I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting down, <laughs> I'm getting down. there's a, a very ver, ver, reminders of the very brutalness of 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 human humanity, and that's um, tough. It's tough. Well,
1: it, it, of course, it, it can be, but. Uh, let me give you a, a, a lighter view of it. In uh, a Gull- in Gulliver's Travels, in the third book of Gulliver's Travels, there's a, a famous... You remember in, in Gulliver's Travels, there uh, the third book has actually a bunch of little voyages. Mm-hmm. In, 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 and one of them is the famous voyage to Laputa, the flying island, the floating island that's ruled by uh, philosophers. right. Uh, there's a pass. Everybody up there is just incredibly smart. I mean, they just walk and talk philosophy, natural philosophy, being what we would now call science, um, all the time. Um, and as you say, they are brutal because uh, you'll remember they live by the tribute that they exact from the people who are under them. If the
0: people I'll don't crush put, them, if they don't give the give <laughs> give the food or whatever,
1: exactly, exactly. But remember that. These people are so smart that we're told that they employ servants called flappers. And these flappers take a sheep bladder and fill it with, put pebbles in it and tie it to the end of a stick. And they walk along with their masters. Um, And when the master is supposed to talk to the person he's walking with, they flap him on the mouth in order to remind him to talk. And if he's supposed to listen, they flap him on the ear to remind him to talk. And if they're approaching a precipice or the edge of the island, they flap them on the eyes to remind them to look because these guys are so engaged. Head in the clouds, right? Literally in the clouds, exactly. Well, you know, when you put it that way, it goes all the way back to Aristophanes, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Right, it, it does. So that intelligence that Plato tries to draw out of us—I mean that uh, Socrates tries to draw out of us—Aristophanes is already satirizing in the clouds.
0: I was just—I um, was just uh, listening to the uh, uh, BBC adaptation of Liz Estrada, <clears throat> and that—and that—that has its own its own whole thing. But yeah, it's it, it, it's it's nice how everything ties together in the end. But um, it, it was very strange. I was I was just listening to this week. I was listening to a new audiobook version of The Black Cloud and, by Fred Hoyle. And Hoyle, I, I don't know if you know this, but Fred Fred Hoyle uh, was an astronomer, uh, uh, I guess astrophysicist, um, who he's famous for coining the term the Big Bang. Um, right. But he apparently he he was he coined it accidentally in the sense that he was mocking the idea or he was not a believer in the idea of a, of an explosive universe. he thought we lived in a steady state universe um, and as as I was listening to the book, uh, it struck me that there is a a big section in the book talking about senses being derived creating intelligence and and um, telepathy. Wh- whether telepathy is, uh, if everyone had telepathy, we wouldn't have communication. We wouldn't have individuals. We would all be one. And in in part of that section, which I which I've extracted, there's a really interesting explanation for intelligence, which is, uh, I think, Fred Hoyle giving his explanation, and it also addresses one of the one of the prompts that uh, made this topic podcast. Of interest, which is, I think, I think it was Greg Marguerite, uh, one of our, our uh, in a previous podcast, he had mentioned the the uh, idea that we are breeding stupidity, that (laughs) intelligence is is getting less and less because intelligent people are having fewer and fewer children, and that uh, I I think that that's what what's going on in, in the podcast that we will have out uh, last week, <laughs> which is the week um, that actually we were recording in right now, uh, in a Cyril M. Kornbluth story called The Marching Morons. Mm-hmm. In in that story, it's set in the deep future. All the intelligent people have to work very hard to fix all the mistakes of all the very stupid people who are much more numerous. And this is Kornbluth's idea that we have allowed unrestricted breeding by the inferior intelligent people uh to cause to cause the the world to to get worse and worse but i think there's a nice explanation in in fred hoyle's work which i I want us to have a listen to and and see see what we think so i'll get you to press play on your file and i'll press play on mine okay here we go
2: The explanations that are usually offered to explain the incidence of men of outstanding genius seem certainly wrong. Genius is not a biological phenomenon. A child does not possess genius at birth. Genius is learned. Biologists who maintain otherwise ignore the facts of their own science— namely, that the human species has not been selected for genius, nor is there evidence that genius is transmitted between parent and child. The infrequency of genius is to be explained in simple probabilities. A child must learn a great deal before it reaches adult life. Processes such as the multiplying of numbers can be learned in a variety of ways. This is to say, the brain can develop in a number of ways, all enabling it to multiply numbers, but not all with by any means the same facility. Those who develop in a favourable way are said to be good at arithmetic, while those who develop inefficient ways are said to be bad or slow. Now, what decides how a particular person develops? The answer is chance. And chance accounts for the difference between the genius and the dullard. The genius is one who has been lucky in all his processes of learning. The dullard is the reverse. And the ordinary person is one who has neither been particularly lucky nor particularly unlucky.
0: So, what what would you think about that? That seems to me like the, the argument that I was making, I think, to Greg Marguerite, saying that, it's not, it's not actually intelligence uh, that's getting bred. It's just people that's getting bred. And stupid people can have smart babies and smart people can have stupid babies. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like, unless we're talking about some genetic disease or um, environmental cause, that, that smartness breeds smartness and stupidity stu- breeds stupidity at least in 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 science not in science fiction but in science and yet yeah. a lot of uh, i think the idea behind a lot of you know sort of the the early 20th century eugenics movement was uh, a, a firm belief that it was the other it was the other way that people who are smart are entitled to have more babies because people who are stupid shouldn't and and i know that sterilization programs were fairly common before the nazis and they were very common during the nazis and then after that we sort of shied away from them
1: well i i certainly believe that people who do not live by mental labor are quite as likely to bear children who can succeed by living at mental labor as are those parents who do live by mental labor Um, it seems to me that over the course of generations to the extent that intelligence is heritable uh, if we continue to protect those who don't have it then it will spread in the population the same way that uh, nearsightedness can spread Um, there are things that would have killed people before they could breed once upon a time, and it doesn't kill them anymore, and things change. Um, But I think that we know so little about what we mean by intelligence. Yeah. That, I mean, for instance, you know, this notion that there are multiple intelligences, there's emotional intelligence, and so on. Um, it's, It's clear that Homo sapiens has multiplied its biomass not simply because it has geniuses, whatever that word meant in the passage we just listened to, but because it has lots and lots and lots of people who are, in fact, ordinary, that we breed against the outliers at either end. Real geniuses are shunned, and science fiction makes that clear, that someone who is too damn smart gets beaten down. I mean, we know, for instance, from the studies of women's abilities in mathematics, that the social predisposition not to have somebody shine, if you want to be a good girl and grow up to have a husband, has meant that talents have gone undeveloped. What we breed for is people who get along with other people. We vote for people on the basis of character rather than the basis of talent were the basis of their ideas and so it seems to me that it may well be that for the org, for the species we are breeding for social intelligence even if we're not breeding for let's say engineering intelligence
0: sounds right to me
1: i mean you know that famous line i think it's attributed to newton if i see further than others it's because i stand on the shoulders of giants uh, it has always seemed to me that if you see further than others it's because you stand on the shoulders of ordinary people
0: all those it people is. making making it possible for you
1: exactly and You know, if you if you look at the history of humanity, if you and and I'm talking about even its technical history, you know, agriculture and and tools and, and so on, if you look at the history of those things, they go by increments. I mean, even the biggest leaps that you can imagine, like the development of the calculus. Well, you know, maybe it wasn't Newton, maybe it was Leibniz. And you know what? If Newton had never lived, Leibniz would have done it. And if neither Newton nor Leibniz had ever lived, someone else we never heard of would have done it two years later. You know, evolution, was it Darwin's idea or was it Wallace's? Oh, wait a minute. Darwin's grandfather had that idea, too. And Mary Shelley makes reference to it in the preface to Frankenstein, to the grandfather. I mean, you know, there's that line that Robert Heinlein quotes, um, when it was time to make rail- build railroads they would build railroads. Um, The genius may be the guy who gets there 10 minutes before everybody else and sees it more clearly than anybody else had seen it before. But just like Columbus and the egg, once you show people how to do that, everyone can do it. And if you don't show them how to stand the egg on end by cracking it down on the tabletop, 10 minutes later, maybe somebody else will.
0: Indeed. And in fact... um Thinking about this uh, makes me think that maybe maybe the, the stories in science fiction about intelligence and stupidity are not so much about actual intelligence and stupidity, but are more about our relationship to uh, the fundamental human process, which is, I think, you know, thinking. Um, yes. Uh, all... All humans i uh, all persons, maybe not all humans, but all persons seem to me to have a, a genius that that other animals don't seem as 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 communicative about <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
0: perhaps every animal is a, a loner in its you know in its intellectual capacity i i i don't know i don't know uh, enough about. Enough animals to say more than you know the collective intelligence of a a uh, a hive of bees or an anthill may 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 be greater than the sum of its parts, but an individual horse um, is in a probably stuck in its own mind whereas we can communicate our ideas and we can compound with with books and with with uh even spoken tradition we can compound our intelligence exactly. after generations that doesn't exactly. it doesn't appear to happen in in the other species so in that way intelligence and stupidity is kind of about about that common thread and it makes me think of you know the most classic story of science fiction and intelligence and stupidity would be i guess flowers for algernon
1: ah uh, yes
0: and the takeaway, interestingly, from that story is not um, wow, isn't this an intellectually interesting story? because really it's not an interesting story intellectually it's an interesting story emotionally. We don't say, boy that that Daniel Keyes, he was once a clever fellow, he really he really had a great plot going there. <laughs> and, you know we figured it out, and we, we were intellectually engaged. it's not about intellectual engagement, it's about a person. Who gets something and loses something, and their relationship to their the world and themselves uh, with that something and yes it's powerful powerful but not in an intellectual way i don't think
1: you know the uh, to remind uh, someone who, who perhaps has not read the either the the short story version or the or the the novel version or seen the movie. Um, Charlie, the one who is uh, of very low IQ and, and experimented on and allowed to get to a stage where he's actually smarter than the scientists who changed him. Um, he comes to fall in love. He comes to finally understand that the people who had teased him when he was of small intelligence actually were mean and he comes to forgive them. At at the end, when his intelligence is disappearing and he knows that he will die because that's what happened to the mouse they showed him, Algernon, and he says, you know, please don't forget to put flowers on the grave for Algernon. Um, What Daniel Keyes is giving us is a sense that When intelligence was gone, there was still something deeper that defined humanity. That we shouldn't define humanity by our intelligence, but by our commitment to an other. And at the end of the time machine, the the outermost narrator says, contemplating the effete Eloy, that the time traveler presumably has gone back to help. I uh, got back into the future to help. He says, but I still have by me two flowers, which were the ones he brought back, the, got from the time traveler who had had them put into his pocket by an Eloy he saves, Weena. I have two flowers to show me that when intelligence was gone, sympathy remained. That, that fundamental humanity has to do with emotion not with intelligence. That seems to be the cry again and again in science fiction. If, at the end of Flowers for Algernon, as Charlie is devolving, he had said, listen, I realize what these people did to me, and I hate them all, so when I die, please blow up a bomb under their <laughs> research institute. I don't think we would feel the same way.
0: No, we, it would be a comedy.
1: Exactly. Keyes wants us to understand something. There's... Uh, in um, he, she, and it. Um, th- have you read that?
0: I don't think I have. No.
1: It's a. I, I think it's a, a marvelous, marvelous novel by Marge Piercy. Um, and in this novel, the uh, the main character um, is Shira. A uh, the word means poetry or song in Hebrew, um, and she is. Uh, uh, Interested in um, working with a robot named Yod, who is the 10th version of a robot that's been created by Avram, um, a scientist who has a long-time relationship with Shira's grandmother. And Shira's grandmother has been training Yod by giving him stories Hmm. because mere programming doesn't get you the essence of humanity. But Yad has been created in this small community in a future that's dominated by um, ecological disaster and large multinational corporations. This community is a small community that survives by its intellectual labor. It makes software and programs and things, and it's a Jewish community. And Yad is like the golem. He's created in order to protect the community. And at the end of the novel, Yod has been called into action and has followed his programming and committed horrific murders for the sake of the community. Um, But along the way, Yod has become a real character. We care about him the same way we care about Charlie in Flowers for Algernon. And so what Yod decides to do is to commit suicide, and he leaves the the crystals that have the programming to how to make a yod um, and asks that they be destroyed in a note. And his note rec- rec- sends to Shira asking her to do this his belief that, and I'll quote here, it was immoral to create a conscious weapon. If you're going to be a weapon, you should just be a tool. If you're conscious, you shouldn't be required to have to be a weapon. And in saying that, Yod is distinguishing between the application of intelligence and what it means to just be a human being.
0: I'm going to have and to program myself with this book because it that sounds great.
1: It's a marvelous book, yeah.
0: I, I, I think that was uh, one of the options in in a university course on feminist uh, science fiction that I took, um, but we didn't go with that one for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Instead, we went with the Doomsday book, which I am a lot less pleased with.
1: Uh, Connie Willis's novel.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's it's, a, it's an all right book, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to have the gravitas that this one does.
1: I. Uh... In the middle of reading Doomsday Book, um, I received a terrifying telephone call telling me that uh, someone I loved was in the emergency room. Um, I won't, on this podcast, go into details further, but let me just say that I am the world's least reliable critic of the Doomsday Book. Right, right. I read it before that phone call, and months later, I finished it after that phone call.
0: <laughs> right. I gotcha. Wow. Um, yeah.
1: But it does remind you, doesn't it, the, uh, the importance of the social intelligence as opposed to the, the technical intelligence. I mean, so often in science fiction, the character who demonstrates the highest technical intelligence is the isolated individual. You know, the invisible man makes himself invisible because he's pushing the end of his intelligence and extracts himself from the community that he then decides to to rule. And when ordinary people get together, they turn out to be more powerful than he is and kill him. Hmm. And then we see, you know, as he turns back into a human being, a visible human being, that he was an albino all along. He had always been shunned by society, and that's why he chose to use intelligence to say, okay, if that's what I am, you don't want to see me as anything but bad, I'm going to make sure you can't see me at all. I'll get back at you. Intelligence becomes a weapon, but it is immoral, according to Yod, to create a conscious weapon.
0: It, it doesn't. It, it isn't a problem so far in our technology we haven't made any conscious weapons unless unless we're talking about people (laughs) um you know soldiers yeah um in which case we we actually have done that for thousands of years perhaps um and i guess that has that has had many deleterious effects upon the upon them yeah and and society too but
1: i think one of the issues that that Uh, philosophers of science are concerned with, and I think that science fiction is concerned with as well, is the meaning of the notion of weapon. That is, um, tool is a more general term.
0: Killing tool.
1: Well, I mean, there's, there's that wonderful passage in Zamyatin's We, where he talks about how the, the, the highwayman and the surgeon both cut a man 's throat, mm. and whether you view this as positive or negative, you just have to engage the teeth of the wheels of logic and give it a turn. Um, that the knife is is not a weapon; the knife is a tool, and to call the knife a weapon means that you 're thinking only of the highwayman and you 're not thinking of the of the surgeon. Uh, You know, so, all right, the policemen in my town, they carry guns. Um, And I'm white, middle class, so I see a policeman with a gun, and I'm thinking it's a tool for protecting. But I imagine that there are people who see that policeman with a gun on his hip, and they think, this is a weapon. Uh, Certainly, the first time I got I deplaned in an airport um, where the the guards, the security, were carrying submachine guns. It really shocked me. It is as shocking. An American It is shocking.
0: I agree. I, 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 when I went to Mexico City for the first time, every every street corner had a a police officer with a, a very well look, well used looking submachine gun, you yes. know, right, you know, in his hands, and. It's, it's it's a it's a it's a policing tool. You almost don't want to go up and say, "Excuse me, could you tell me where I could find <laughs> the Placeau National?" <laughs> right, right. And I think
1: science fiction has been worrying about that from the very beginning. You know, if intelligence leads us to the point of separating ourselves from society, then the tools that we create are going to be used to enforce our Dissociation to enforce our authority to rule over people to prevent the community as a whole from from finding its own desires and moving forward, and so we have you know Robert le Conquérant in Jules Verne. We have one mad scientist after another, and they may do this inadvertently by you know, setting off a bomb that releases Godzilla in Tokyo Bay, they may do it advertently because they decide that the world would be better if only some smart person ruled it the way uh, Ozymandias does or tries to do at the end of Watchmen. But, you know, by intentionally or unintentionally, uh, science fiction keeps showing us that great intelligence separates us from the ordinary run of humanity, and the fact is as that clip from uh, the purple, from the black cloud shows, great intelligence really is different from the ordinary run of humanity
0: Indeed um, One of the follow-up stories to um, I think, you know so in the dialogue of science fiction uh, was one called uh, Understand by Ted Chiang, that was the first Ted Chiang story I'd ever read, and uh, if there is one intelligent science fiction writer <laughs> out there writing today, I think it's got to be Ted Chiang. His his stories are just uh, unbelievably awesome. It's I can't I can't believe that he's not you know one of those classic science fiction writers from forty or fifty years ago who uh, who, who you know you think of in the pantheon of Heinlein and Asimov and Clark. Because it's just so fantastic uh, that this stuff is, hadn't been written before and it's so well characterized. So Understand is, uh, let me tell you about it, is, um, is kind of similar to The Marching Morons in a way. In the sense that it's a person who, who is um, blanked out for a while and then comes back. Uh, but he comes back via surgery and drugs. Um, he's he he's accidentally nearly killed in a in a drowning accident, and his mind is damaged by lack of oxygen. Then they use an experimental drug to bring bring him from a vegetative state to regular intelligence. But it soon appears that he has no longer just gained back his original intellect. He is in fact accelerating intellectually, and. Uh, this isolates him from from everyone around him, and he can read details out of you know the newspaper and um, public events he can predict the future in uh the short term and identify problems that are upcoming and patterns that we can 't see being the intellectually diminished folks uh, that we are and the story accelerates from there, giving no relapse into the the loss that we see in Lars for Algernon. In fact, um, his intelligence expands exponentially. And then we have to say, wh- where does the plot go from there? It goes, it goes interestingly from there, but it, it, it it's very fascinating to see that development of going up, gaining intelligence, and then seeing beyond what what would make us much smarter, and Ted Chang has really interesting answers for that one. Mm. So, I do I do highly recommend that story if you get a chance to to check it out. Um, Thank you.
1: Is it is it fundamentally hopeful?
0: Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not sure what what. Uh, I'm not sure what Ted Chang's um, purpose in this story is, other than to shock and awe. It may be only a shock and awe sort of situation where you can't believe something so so well-constructed. And what, what kind of... When everyone is a fool, right, t- compared to him, mm-hmm. when he's talking to babies, you know, and it, it, you, it, you just don't want to... Ha- he doesn't want to have... He doesn't have anything in common with regular people what What challenges remain right if everyone in the world around you is an idiot and I, I know a lot of people feel this <laughs> everyone around them is an idiot um, uh, what what kind of relationship can you have with the world um he 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 creates an enemy for himself in a way perhaps um, or a friend, and that that's that's perhaps where it goes, but I, I, I'm just, I'm, I can't, I can't express how impressed I am with with his ability to, to take what we would say is intellectual, intellectual exercise of what would make someone smarter than a very smart person, mm-hmm. um, and and see see what goes with that, and he does he does it immeasurably well, I think. Wow. Sound, now I've got to put that one on my list. Please, please do. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Have you uh, Have you read his master's voice by Lem?
0: No, I, I haven't read any Stanislaw Lem.
1: Ah, well, I, I recommend him. Uh, his master's voice is a stunning, to me, demonstration of um, the intelligence of its own author. Um, The main character, named Hogarth, is, we are told, an incredibly intelligent person. Now, the whole novel is premised on the problem of deciding whether or not a long series of frequency fluctuations is, in fact... Communication from the stars or noise being produced by a process we just don't understand. The US government sets up a Manhattan Project style compound in the American Southwest with linguists and computer scientists and all sorts of people trying to make sense of this stuff, and they're not making progress. So well, they actually make interesting kinds of progress, but they get no definitive answer and so the government brings in Hogarth, this incredible genius in order to try to manage them in a way that will get them to get the the real insight that the government wants, so that we Americans can of course be the first to communicate with the stars and claim the universe for ourselves um, a kind of imperialism that the soviets. Figured that Stanislaw Lem was really aiming against America. But, of course, <laughs> he was really aiming it against the Russian overlords, this Polish writer. But that's another matter. Um, it applied to America as well. So here's what what Lem pulls off in this novel. This is what I find so astonishing. You know, when someone writes in a novel that the character played gorgeous music. You don't have to actually have the gorgeous music because you don't get music in the words on a page. So you just have to write about music in such a way that people feel that there's gorgeous music going on. Well, it's easy enough to say, character wrote beautiful poetry, but you risk something if you then show the character's poetry. Because if you say it's really great poetry, then what you show has got to be great poetry. Well, Lem takes that second route. He has Hogarth do this as a first-person narrative. Hogarth is supposed to be so smart, and yet we have access to his mind. And Lem manages to pull off Hogarth being so smart. And here's the part that's really most astonishing and brings us back to the notion of community. If you have a first-person narrator, it is possible for that narrator to communicate more than he intends. So Poe, for example, has these untrustworthy narrators who are clearly crazy, but they don't know they're crazy. But we know they're crazy because we can tell from the way they're talking that they're crazy. Lem manages to create in Hogarth a narrator who is clearly smarter than anybody you've ever met. And simultaneously, Lem allows us to see that Hogarth does not himself understand the limits of his own intelligence, making us feel
0: even more intelligent than Hogarth.
1: (laughs) I don't know how the heck Lem is so smart that he is able to do it.
0: Well, maybe, maybe, maybe it's because it's a novel, right? If if this was a conversation, um, and you were in, engaged it with his character in conversation, um, he would have all the regrets that people. I know uh, people sometimes say, um, "Oh, if I'd only thought of this to say in that conversation, that would have brought the house down," right? In a novel, it's not one pass; it's many passes, right? Good point. An good author point. can go over and say, "How would I? How could I make this better?" And very good, passing through many times. Um, that's that's the only way I can imagine. <laughs> unless, very good. Unless he is both smarter than the character and and the audience at the same time well, in one pass.
1: Well, he he really is very or was very smart. There's no doubt about that. But I think you're quite right. Obviously. The process of revision <laughs> came into wonderful play here. Um, nonetheless, the, the result is a demonstration of intelligence that establishes a sense of community between the implied author, you know, Lem biographically, and us that doesn't finally undercut intelligence. It just shows us that intelligence needs to be understood in human terms. And to be able to do that is something else that science fiction can sometimes do, but I think more frequently warns us against rather than showing us that it can happen. Because wow. we're warned against intelligence in science fiction much more than we're shown that it really is uh, something to bring people together.
0: There's a, a brand new version of uh, Solaris, a uh, new translation av- available um, as an audiobook. I was just informed of it earlier. This week, uh-huh. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get that because um, I've, seen, I've seen both movies, and uh, I was baffled by both of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it might be time to go to the original source material and, and see what he has to say. Have you read Solaris?
1: I have read Solaris. You know, um, Solaris for a long time was considered to be uh, Lem's masterpiece. Um, but I think that's because it was the only one of his great novels that was available in English. Um, I do believe that much of Lem's, I I know that much of Lem's work is not only, all of his work is deeply intelligent, but most of his work is also very funny. And his master's voice has this satire against scientists that runs through it, um, that I think makes it a much more lively novel than Solaris, which is really a depressing novel. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a powerful novel. I recommend it to you. But it is not typical of Lem, if you can use that term for someone who writes in so many different forms. It doesn't have this, the light spirit along with the spectacular intelligence that you see in the futurological Congress or his master's voice or the Siberiad, uh, memoirs found in a bathtub. Um, there, obviously I, I like the guy a lot, read Solaris, but if, if you turn out to be just depressed by it, um, give him another shot.
0: I, I, I will definitely check out that. And I'm hoping that, um, he, she, and it is available as an audiobook soon. And, um, and, uh, What was the other uh, Lamb book called? I lost it. The Futurological Congress? The Futurological Congress, that's right. Right.
1: Yeah, I do use that one in teaching, and the students love it. They love it because it's hilarious. Um, But, you know, so often with a good writer, I find this in so many cases, um, my pleasure, and I, I don't know to what extent I will speak for anybody else, and I don't want to try to here, but my pleasure comes from being able not merely to see what the author has given me, but to see what the author has also allowed me to discover. Yeah. And one of the things that I dislike about Isaac Asimov is that every time he says something that has deep symbolic value, not every time, but most of the time, when he says something that has deep symbolic value... Or he says something which is enriched by recognizing that it's an allusion. Or he uses a word that's so well chosen that if you understand its etymology, you'll get a richer view. Two pages later, he explains that to you in case you missed it. Yeah, it's true. You know, I, I would like him to have the respect to his audience to let us just discover stuff. And that is relevant here. Do you happen to know, I'm now I'm putting on my my professorial hat. Do you happen to know the etymology of the word intelligence?
0: Um, I was looking up something earlier. Um, uh, there was a Greek word noose N O U S I think it was. And that was, that was talking about, um, that was talking about, I think it was in, in the Iliad and it was, uh, Agamemnon was referring to, uh, Achilles actually, not, not Odysseus, who I, I think of as the clever one. Um, I guess everybody thinks of as the clever one as, as wit, right? Wit or or um, or craftiness or something. I'm not sure. No, what is the
1: well? Very. I think this is really wonderful, especially for people like you and me who like to read. <clears throat> Intelligence comes from the Latin inter legere, to read between the lines.
0: Ah. Uh, Indeed uh, yeah I I think I think you've you've actually highlighted one of the uh the things in Asimov that it makes him less less artistic in a way I don't know I it, it seems to me that Isaac Asimov was writing for himself and that it was a byproduct <laughs> of of all his writing that we we get to you know peek over his shoulder and and um yeah it it is it is not as um it's not as, uh, he doesn't leave it maybe enough to the imagination.
1: And so, w- in a way, what I'm saying is, he is not supposing that intelligence on the part of his readers. He he reads between the lines for you. He says it, and then three pages later, he makes sure that you got it. It's like the guy who tells you a joke and then elbows you and says,
0: I, got it? Explains it.
1: You know, right, he winks at you. Right, and, if you didn't get it, the elbow is not going to help. If you did get it, you don't want the elbow.
0: Nobody wants the elbow. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> By the way, stupid has an interesting etymology too. What's that? Um it
0: It's a fun means, word to say.
1: Yeah. It means to be stunned. It yeah. Means,
0: that makes sense.
1: Yeah. It's, it's
0: stupefied, yeah.
1: Precisely. So Stuper. when When all of your senses stop working, that's stupid, as opposed to ignorant, right? And there, I think, is one of the places that science fiction, you know, ignorant without knowledge, that's one of the places where science fiction really helps us, because the quest for more knowledge, scientia, science, the quest for more knowledge can be done within the context of of those human things that we feel connected by or it can be done for its own sake no man uh, uh, a man's life no man's life uh, was it i've just <laughs> forgotten the quote i gave you just before uh, about a man's life not mattering compared to the knowledge that i sought. um
0: I, I just have to loop back and, and grab it. I don't remember, honestly.
1: Right. One man's life were but a small price to pay for the knowledge ah, right. that I sought. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if, of course, if you're stupefied, you're you're even below the animal. So here's a question for you, Jesse. You've you've read so much science fiction. This is this is a perhaps an historical question. It is often occurred to me as a lover of language. The word sentient hmm. um, is not related to the word science, at least not in Latin. It may be if you go back to Indo-European. But sentient comes from not the Latin shieri to know, but the Latin sentire to feel. Sentient just means to be able to feel, to have your senses functioning. So, you know, you, clearly dogs are sentient. Right, I mean, there's no doubt they respond to many different senses. Uh, I don't know whether or not you want to say that an earthworm, when it crumbles together, when it re- shrinks at your touch, is sentient. But certainly dogs are sentient. There's no doubt about it. And yet, in science fiction, when we talk about meeting the alien and yeah. whether or not it's okay to eat Hans, you know and right i mean and you get that in story after story right beyond lies the wub you know yep uh by dick i mean we are thinking intelligence but in science fiction people keep using the word sentience
0: yeah in, in fact that that is a, basically a science fiction word now right it it, it is it's like um, what's the uh <laughs> It's like uh, warp drives. Not really. A <laughs> a it's
1: a technology. piece of jargon. You're saying. Yeah.
0: It's a. It, but it. It is a. It's a coded word. Right. It means um, equal. Equally human or equally person. Personness.
1: But how did that happen? There's my historical question. How did that happen? The word doesn't mean that.
0: No. Um, I'm not sure. It's a good question. It's I probably. Um, Probably uh, this is uh, something we could research if we had uh, every, every book on Google. Or we could just do a search <laughs> and and uh, find out what what the first entrance is and and see the see the dialogue that that happened. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what's the uh, what's the device that Le Guin invented that has been used in every other book? The ansible. The ansible, right? So. The ansible is is a is it a trope or a technology it's some sort of uh, shorthand for saying here we've solved this problem so that we can have this sure and sure. sentience is the bag that we put all our our um, our coding for equally human maybe or I, I, and you,
1: you may well be right, you may well be right I'd still want to find out. How it happened, though, because Ansible is a word that Le Guin made up. Right, Sentience is a word that got drafted. That is, it got
0: I would Shanghai Larry Nevin without any without any research. I I, I think Larry Nevin used it a lot um, in his in his short stories and uh, and maybe you know you know Ringworld et cetera. But I'd have to I'd have to uh, confirm that. <laughs>
1: But I guess what I'm asking, though, is why would people, why would we allow this? Uh, For instance, I I think of the under people. You know, Cordwainer Smith's great stories that include things like the Ballad of Lost Kamel, where you've got all of these animals that have been made human, and they still have the the marks of their animality, but they've become more human, and Of course, we feel for them in each of these stories um, because they are still under people. The the full real humans, uh, Homo sapiens, use them in ways that they shouldn't be used. And so if as animals they had sentience, giving them intelligence— should have made them be like humans, and and yet we feel for them, and that doesn't happen. In, in the island of Dr. Moreau, the beast people have been given intelligence, but of course they always, before Moreau tinkers with them, had sentience. And I guess I'm wondering if maybe this trope, as you call it, um, of of sentience standing for humanity may historically suggest that connection we were talking about before that what really makes us human is our emotional connectedness and that intelligence is only an overlay and needs to be warned against if it works against that communal connectedness.
0: I think whenever we get deep deeply into the origins of words and. And uh, we talk about, you know, there's, a, there's an analog word like uh, sapience, I think, is the, is the other one. Yes. Um, and that one's related to not awareness, but, a, but as a wisdom or some sort of, you know, uh, experience. Yes. And whenever we we start talking about about the meaning of words, we always have to remember that words are a map on the world. But it's not a a complete map, and it's not a very accurate map. But when people have been pointing in a direction for a long time, (laughs) there's probably something down there. (laughs) right? Right. There's probably something down there, but the name, you know, the continent of North America (laughs) uh, may change its borders. Uh, The countries in North America may change their borders, but the continent remains. Um, right. And changes, and so it's it's uh, it's it becomes harder and harder i i think i 've got to read the island of dr Moreau because apparently this is this is the book that is still the most relevant and still the most of of wells 's books it 's the one that is the most um, of today so when when i i'm I'm actually in the middle of rereading the time machine right now, and I find that uh, although it's it is a wonderful book it seems to be about addressing nineteenth century uh, problems or nineteenth century issues with um, you know evolution and and the war war of the classes or the clash of the classes um, i don't think of uh, classes as you know the <laughs> I don't think his vision is as as effective as perhaps our relationship that we do have to have with animals and figuring out what what our relationship is with them, as we are one of them. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, maybe maybe more fruitful. Well,
1: I, I'd like to talk with you about about that book when you're done, but um, because I think the trip to. I mean, most of the book, most people's recollection of the time machine is this part set in seven hundred one, with the Eloy and the Morlocks. But there's a further trip that he takes to the year 30 million that I think puts it all into another kind of context yeah. that, that suggests something, um, something else. But one of the things that I love about Wells is that he expects us to read between the lines. He really does respect the intelligence of his readers. So the Morlocks um, who, this is to give away nothing because the, the book is well known, it's, it's to get the texture of it that one rereads. Um, the Morlocks are described by the time traveler as childlike. He says he felt like a schoolmaster amongst children and they are like ten-year-olds. They're shorter than he is and so on. And they get eaten by the eloy um, they are their food
0: uh, you've got that backwards the the eloy are I'm sorry the,
1: they get eaten by the morlocks
0: the morlocks me. The, Eloi the morlocks are the underground the ones
1: right the, excuse me and the eloy are the ones that are like 10-year-old school children right the the morlocks eat them um, so the eloy get eaten by the morlocks the the eloy are like school children well it turns out in the king james bible there is only one passage that remains in the original Aramaic. Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm. And the, and it turns out that Saint Eloi, otherwise known as Eloysius, is the patron saint of foundries. And it's, of course, keeping the machinery running that the Morlocks do but Moloch in the Old Testament is the God that demands the sacrifice of live children. So Wells has these deep references to the Bible as a guide to the spiritual implications of what he's showing us in that future world that only really gets activated if you use your own intelligence. Read between the lines. What Wells is trying to do is actually increase his reader's intelligence. He gives us a chance at discovery. And I think the best science fiction does that. It not only lays out an idea that the author has thought of, but it lays it out in such a way that it stimulates us to further thinking. That's what that's what Gernsback said science fiction was supposed to be about in that, famous editorial for the very first issue of the very first science fiction magazine you know that this was going to be a literature that would make us want to be scientists this was going to be a literature that would get us to think better and of course it turned out to be whiz bang sense of wonder um but that doesn't mean it can be that only it can be the other as well i think wells is spectacular at that so i'm Delighted I, that people think, read them still.
0: I think that that, that exactly sums up what Wells is doing. I I I was recently reading um, the new uh, what's it? It's called the new accelerator. That's um, that's his story.
1: Story. Yeah. yeah,
0: in which uh, there's a drug invented that uh, increases your speed so that you can uh, be at many places in the <laughs> in a few seconds and. Um, the way it's told is is uh, I, I was reading actually a uh, an essay about about that story as well and um and the uh the author of the essay pointed out that you know this story could have been told many different ways right it could have been told from uh you know a guy who invents it to rule the world or a guy who invents it um, to get revenge or right and the way it it ends up being told is it's an exploration of the idea and not a plot point to to get to that idea. So, the reason I think that when Star Trek works well, it, it is science fiction, is because warp drives get, gets us to the place where we can accept the, the pro- problem down on the planet, right? The right. warp drive is not important. Uh, the Ansible is not important. Those are the things that help us get to the idea that the author is trying to explore. And and if you explore the idea, then you're doing the right thing. The, sen- the sense of wonder uh, can, uh, I mean, in a way, Wells is just as good as, at, at that, uh, giving us a vision, uh, showing us how to get time travel by exploring what we already know, you know, the dimensions of space and, right. and of time and how we are all time travelers gives us the sense that, haha, okay, now I understand how we're going to get there. And then when he does tell the story of, you know, going to the ends of the earth, then it gives us a perspective that we could never get in real life. Time travel is not about uh, something plausible. It's about uh, something that's actually happening, but in a way that we will never see. in Right. In, uh, outside of our lifetimes. But being the creatures that we are, or are capable of being, we can enjoy um, the mental ride, the mental um, knowledge that comes from grasping the edges of what reality is. That we are only a very small part of.
1: Yes, one of one of the things that I love about Wells is that in his greatest works, he leaves some part of the question open. What will you do? How shall you, the reader, learn from this? At the end of the War of the Worlds, after the bacteria have destroyed the Martians, the narrator says, but whether this was a reprieve for us or for them, only time will tell. Um, he, he wants us to keep thinking after his books are done and see what we can learn from having been given this heretofore unimagined perspective he imagined it for us and now we have to go to work with it um as opposed to just settling the issue yep. um so in his uh experiment in autobiography um he remarks that he's been a journalist a playwright um a writer of quite successful, as it happens, nonfiction, a writer of fiction, a writer of fantasy, a writer of more realistic kind of fiction. Uh, he put science fiction as rom- a scientific romance. Um, and he's asked, you know, well, what are you? <laughs> um, and his conclusion is that in all that he has done, he's been a teacher.
0: Sounds right to me.
1: Yeah. Well, you and I both are, and I guess, you know, what we hope to do is not simply to convey facts to our students, but get them to think more.
0: Show show them the possibilities that are out there.
1: Yeah. Asimov, despite my having knocked him a bit there, um, has a, an award-winning 1972, I think, novel called The Gods Themselves. Mm-hmm. And that title is uh, a piece of a quote from Schiller that says, "Against stupidity, the gods themselves contend in vain."
0: Well, I think uh, isn't it? What reporters they just become very cynical <laughs> because they get they 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 get all the news that we get, but they also they they also uh, filter out most of it, right? Yeah. You can't report on everything, but they get you know they get all the reports, and then they say, okay, what are we going to report on? So they would try and report on the the interesting stuff, but they become much more cynical than, or at least they used to be. I don't think reporters still report like they used to. But
1: yeah, uh, I have a feeling that a lot of reporters don't actually gather a whole lot of information anymore.
0: I think uh, yeah, I think what mostly they do now is they go onto Facebook and.
1: <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. But, you know, we never actually did talk about them. I mentioned blocks. it.
0: I mentioned I. I don't think it's a great story in the sense that I think its its premise is deeply flawed. But it is a classic. And I think that even wrong turns uh, that are classics can be of value, especially when I find out that they're public domain.
1: <laughs> well, that's because Cornbluth died so young.
0: I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. But not all of his stuff is. Uh, you know, a lot of his combinations with...
1: Well, Fred um, Poe, thank God, is still with us, but... That's
0: right. I just started listening to The Space Merchants. Oh, great novel. Yeah. It's really funny. Really, really funny. And and uh, <laughs> very modern. Very modern. Yes.
1: And very, another book that's very concerned with language. Indeed. Right? I mean, I forget. What's the name of the female copywriter? Trixie Tracy? What's her...
0: I don't know. I just, just started it. Oh,
1: okay. I won't tell you then. Anyway, but you, you'll see. I mean, the concern for language there is, is, is marvelous. Uh, the thing about the Marching Morons that I would have thought that we would have gotten to um, mm-hmm. is that the society, I mean, the premise about how we wind up getting so many people being so dull um, biologically doesn't work.
0: No, it's wrong. It it's, it's right. seems but, to be incorrect.
1: Yes. However, the dramatic situation in which we are shown that a very, very small number of really smart people might be all you need to keep society functioning—that's a provocative thought.
0: It is. It, it, it's. Um, he makes them out to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, they're overworked and underappreciated and. That, and I think that what we're supposed to draw out from that is that we shouldn't let this situation happen um, I'm not sure he goes so far as to say we we need a uh, you know to get people licensed to have babies pass a test like you know a voters test or something like that a right. breeding test I don't think he goes quite that far but that seems to be sort of the the implication. Apparently, the story came from uh, uh, I think the editor who published a uh, little black a Bla- little black bag. Do you know that story?
1: I do know that story.
0: That's about. Which
1: is, a, I think that's a dynamite story.
0: Yeah, it's about a it's a it's about a guy who finds a little black Dr. bag. F-
1: Doctor Fell is his name.
0: Right, and it, it's sort of a magic. It's not magical. It's a technological bag from the future. I think it is that can cure any disease without any effort on the part of the physician. He just follows the very simple instructions and it, it cures all disease. So right. it imagines that I think that the story of Little Black Bag inspired the question, where did this bag come from? And and that get leads to the future that has so many dumb people who can't operate anything <laughs> that they need. But, you know, they are still technologically advanced. They've got rockets, right? They've right. got They've got a lot of uh, tech, but they are ultimately uh, ultimately doomed. Um, there's a terrible, terrible movie called Idiocracy. It came out a couple years ago. Have you seen that? I have not. Okay. Well, it, it's, it's basically uh, inspired or ripped off from Marching Morons. And it, where the movie works very well is right at the beginning, showing the premise, setting up mm-hmm. the, the premise that uh, stupid people have lots of babies and smart people choose to be prudently not having children and then it it's interesting but i yeah i i think because it's got this this flawed premise it it goes in a way that i don't think works out that well but it does have some interesting parts on uh, as it goes and apparently um the title comes from um uh this concept that if you lined up every chinaman From here to China, and you had them going one by one through a gate, right? That it would never stop.
1: Right. They would never stop. They reproduce too fast.
0: They would reproduce so quickly that by the time every person who started in the line got to the end, the line would be continuous for all time. And this goes back to Malthus and the ideas of, you know, we're gonna o- overeat ourselves until we collapse or whatever <laughs> right. well it doesn't appear to those uh, that effect doesn't appear to have happened China's curbed its its population growth um at least to a large degree but the the eugenics sort of premise is is really bad yeah
1: yeah i th- i think it's it's clear Um, that the untapped intelligence of, I said, people who make their lives by intellectual labor, um, Mm -hmm. make their livings by intellect, because uh, just because somebody is ignorant and uncultured does not mean that he was not genetically endowed with the ability to be quite intelligent and quite cultured. Um, And there's no going back and running the experiment. But to believe otherwise, I think, is – since you can't run the experiment either way, to believe otherwise is, I believe, uh, well, prejudiced.
0: Well, it it just – yeah, it is prejudiced. But also, it just doesn't seem to be true that smart people breed smart children. Dumb people have bred smart people in the sense that they're dumb and that they're – they're ignorant they they don't have a good living or whatever it is not and and you know Nobel prize winners don't necessarily have Nobel prize win, winning children right right it's it's it it, it is a f- it is at least on the surface incorrect now it may be that if we understood intelligence a lot better than we do whatever we mean by that um we would be able to find some specific instance where where you know there are genetic uh, conditions that can cause uh, recessive abnormalities in, in offspring, those seem to be fairly uh, under control in, in at least some respects in the Western world, anyways.
1: Well, it it, seemed, it, it may be, but again, there's the confounding. <clears throat> I beg your pardon. The confounding problem of running the experiment. I noticed, for instance, that a very high fraction of American presidents are left-handed. It does not seem to me that left-handedness, which is, of course, a reflection of brain uh, brain function, um, it doesn't seem to me that left-handedness makes you a leader. It does seem to me that left-handedness makes you not quite fit in and maybe make you have to be a little bit more aware of what you need to do to fit in. The same way that um, immigrant groups traditionally, during the periods of their own struggle, produce terrific comedians. I mean, they're just, you know, the, the social forces at work in manifesting qualities we admire, like humor, inventiveness, um, leadership, are so vast that running the experiment to figure out how much of it is genetic and how much of it is. Uh, is uh, learned not so easy.
0: And not so. very ethical either.
1: Indeed. <laughs> Indeed.
0: There's the, anyway. there's the double double mistakes, right?
1: Well, unless you're a microcosmic god, right? And you just create those little beasties for yourself.
0: Yeah. I, uh, one of my favorite stories. Yeah. Uh, with a ruthless, horrible main character.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, intelligence is being knocked in science fiction.
0: The other collection I like is the road to science fiction have you got that one
1: uh, I do Jim Gunn is a friend of mine
0: yeah um, those introductions are really good and really interesting
1: yes he's a smart guy'
0: and reading a wonder,
1: and a very kind and humane person too
0: well he must be if he he writes about science fiction right
1: <laughs> well you know I remember once he gave a he talked about a story that he wrote. Uh, one I haven't read and the name of which now eludes me, but it's a story about a kid who um, makes one of these desperate deals with God that children sometimes will. I'll do this if you'll do that for me. And the deal that he makes, you know, I forget now what it is, but you know, I'll, I'll cut off my finger if you'll let my mother live, something like that. You mm-hmm. know? And, uh, and he does and she does. And so he decides that the deal works. And he goes along mutilating himself um, and keeps getting the right results. So Jim said in this lecture that I heard him give once that his original conception was to have the guy actually kill himself as to get his final, you know deal that something he wants so much that he kills himself in order to get it which would be just horrifying you know and but he decided instead to have him not get the last deal
0: because, That's horrifying too
1: <laughs> Well that's horrifying in a different way but it's you're right it's horrifying too but he decided to change the ending to not getting the deal he thought getting the deal would be the more philosophically powerful ending. You know, because it would leave you with the question holy crap, what if you really could do this? But it was because of that very power that Jim said in this lecture he decided to change the ending because he felt he would be responsible if somebody read the story oh. and tried to test it.
0: That's like the story that he can't publish because he's worried about. The results of... uh, (laughs) Exactly. What I I would be thinking is that there is a God in that story, and that's the author, right? The author says, "Um, I'm reading the story here, I'm writing the story here, and let's see what happens when he does this, right? And well, because he's the God of the story, he has this character do those things. There is a God responding to those actions. And in the end, he is just like that God (laughs) responding to... What happens to the character? I mean, maybe he's he's not giving him free will, but he's certainly uh, he's certainly exploring the idea. I, I would say I would say that there there it sounds like an interesting story.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I look forward to uh, whatever we decide or you decide that we should do some other time. This is always illuminating and uh, and really enjoyable.
0: Jesse, I appreciate I- it. I appreciate uh, you saying that, and I also appreciate you, you coming on because it makes makes for you know I I can store up a bunch. Of, like you're saying, my word hoard is going to be very uh, very great.
2: <laughs>
0: this has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.